Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. Thanks so much for joining us today for a show that's going to take us from Washington to Atlanta to suburban areas around Atlanta, down to Macon, Georgia. We're all over the map on Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Let me get to the panel as soon as possible so we can start talking about the big issues today. Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Thanks for being here today, Greg. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're good. We always enjoy seeing you because you cover virtually everything that has to do with state politics that we're going to talk about in any given show. It makes my job easy. (laughs) My prep work is very easy. Uh, Right next to you, Leo Smith, a Republican strategist, uh, formerly uh, a staff member at the Georgia Republican Party, now out doing consulting on his own, working particularly hard on finding ways to uh, do outreach among the Republicans to African-American communities. Leo, are you actively, are you working as a consultant right now, and are you recruiting candidates for the 2020 cycle? I am working as a consultant. Yeah, do you have any candidates? I am not going to look at candidates for this cycle because I have some very big projects related to political engagement that I'm kind of working on to launch. Yeah, at some point we're going to get you in here to talk about them. I know that you've been uh, working among other things. I think it's fair for me to say with the King Center. And we'll yes. we'll talk about that as that starts to really uh, blossom. Um, Representative Scott Hokum, Democrat from uh, DeKalb is your basic area. You've got like... Um, a lot of the cities in that northern area, northeastern area of DeKalb, right? Like- exactly. Doraville, Chambly, Brookhaven, unincorporated DeKalb by the North Lake Mall, and then a little bit of Gwinnett. Okay. Um, also, Chris Grant, who is typically with us from uh, our studios in Macon, head of the political science department from Mercer. Uh, but here you are in the studio. Thanks for coming up and being with us. I thought it would be a fun day to escape the heat of yeah. Middle Georgia. <laughs> it's great to have you here. And just joining us from Washington, where I can only imagine how busy she's been this morning, AJC reporter Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, are you, have you caught your breath yet? Have you been watching the House Judiciary Committee? Tomorrow? Okay. We'll She's get, still catching her breath. She's still <laughs> catching her breath. We'll get to her in a minute. Hey, Scott, let's yeah. start. Let's. Are you there tomorrow? All right, we'll get to her in just a second. Scott, while, before we start with uh, uh, talking about what's happening up in Washington, you had a bill. You've been working for some time in a very bipartisan fashion to uh, make sure that law enforcement has the tools it needs to uh, process rape kits, to be able to go after rapists. And you, the governor just the other day signed your latest bill. Tell us just a little about it. Thanks, Bill. Governor Kemp signed House Bill 282 yesterday, a measure that passed unanimously in each committee meeting in both the House and the Senate and was passed unanimously in both the House and the Senate. And it's an important measure, and it builds upon the work that our state has been doing since 2016. We addressed the backlog, and we cleared um, thousands of kits, over 3,000. And from that, we've identified a number of suspects, and we also have identified um, serial rapists. And so the work is is really bringing about positive results for our state and for other survivors. So this, this latest legislation, what it does very simply is Georgia's code had a preservation time period for only 10 years. And while that seems like a long time, with advances in DNA, it's not long enough. And so there was a national recommendation to extend it out to 50 years for unsolved cases, and that's what we've done. And so Georgia now has one of the most um, uh, progressive and and strongest laws on preserving this evidence. And, And why is it important? 
just two days after I filed it, there was a case in Cobb County that was identified, or that they identified a suspect from a 1994 very brutal sexual assault. Uh, and, and because of the evidence that we have, we're now able to find the person and then pursue justice for, for victims. So I'm very proud of it. I'm grateful to Governor Kemp for signing it and for all my colleagues for continuing to support this work. Representative, it seems like you can run a seminar for your House Democratic colleagues because you and maybe State Rep. Uh, Terry Anulowitz are the only Democrats I can think of that get significant legislation through both chambers and signed by a Republican governor. What, what's the secret there? I, I, I don't know that there's a specific secret except, one, you pick important issues, and, and then two, you really do your homework. And when I talk to legislators, they know that I've done my homework. And I also work very hard to build the coalition of supporters. And what was interesting about this bill was that it had the support of law enforcement, prosecutors, survivors, advocates, and interestingly, defense counsel, because DNA evidence can also be used to exonerate those who were falsely accused. Mm-hmm. And so coming together with strong coalitions and just um, legislation that our state needs to push, I have found a willingness by um, our colleagues in the other party to, to be receptive to that. And I, and I do have to tell you, I'm really proud of that, that we still have that culture here in Georgia. It is very different from what happens in Washington, where an idea can be just dead because of the party proposing it. Well, we wanted to give you a chance to uh, uh, talk about the legislation because you've worked hard on it, and it is a tribute to you that you've got bipartisan. You had completely bipartisan support on it. Um, but we do have to ask you the other big question. Uh, now that Stacey Abrams is out of the race... For the United States Senate, you've said in the past you didn't think you were going to get into this thing, but people still uh, continue to bring up your name now that the field is a little more open. Would you like to announce today on Political Rewind whether you will or will not be a candidate for U.S. Senate for the Democratic nomination, Representative? Thank you, Bill. (laughs) Uh, That's very subtle. Um, I can tell you it's not something that I'm actively looking at. I'm very happy with where I am in the House, and I think that um, uh, very strong odds are that I'll be running for re-election. I'll make a final statement on that at some point. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your fielding that question today. Tamar Hellerman, are you with us in Washington? I am. I am. Sorry about the mix-up. No, don't worry about it. Have you been covering the House Judiciary Committee this morning? Of course, Gerald Nadler, they've been uh, uh, debating whether to vote on uh, a subpoena. I mean, I'm sorry, on holding uh, a William Barr in contempt for not complying with their request that he come and appear before the House Judiciary Committee. And of course, we've got yeah. some key Georgians involved in that, right? Have you been over there? I've been keeping an eye on it, and I, I was just downstairs at the House of Vote right now. They're doing their only vote of the day and, and chatted with Doug Collins really briefly, who's a Gainesville Republican and is now the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee. Um, been very complimentary of the way that, that William Barr has been handling all of this and been kind of throwing the procedural rule book at Democrats, trying to stop them and trip them up throughout it all. He's not going to have the votes to be able to do that, but, but he kind of sees this as, you know, he, he thinks Democrats are just kind of on the march toward impeaching the, the president, and they, he sees this as kind of a, a first step. So um, not too happy about the way things are going on, on his end. As of a little while ago, they had not yet voted on this. Have, do you know whether they've, they've taken that vote now to go ahead and hold him in contempt? Not yet. So they, they paused the hearing to, to vote right now, and they're going to reconvene again at, at 2.30. So right. we, we'll know a little more at the end of the afternoon. So I want to bring the whole panel in, but to set that up, uh, let's uh, do this. The, pre- the White House this morning, as the Judiciary Committee was debating whether or not to hold Barr in contempt, uh, issued a statement saying that they would not comply with any request for the full Mueller report. They consider executive privilege uh, is uh, uh, covers their desire to keep that from becoming public. And, uh, and and so there's that now, Chris Grant, added to the mix here. Uh, and in the Judiciary Committee itself, as this discussion about whether or not to vote uh, to hold a bar in contempt was unfolding, as Tamar pointed out, Doug Collins continues to be the president's most vociferous defender in that very important committee. Let's listen to a little of what he said about this contempt citation today. Democrats are angry the special counsel's report did not produce the material or collusions they expected to pay their path to impeaching the president. 
Second, Democrats are afraid of what the Attorney General will find when he completes his ongoing review of FISA abuses of the Justice Department, including how the Russia investigation began. Multiple news reports have suggested those conclusions could be explosive, could end careers, and could even lead to criminal prosecution. Rather than face that, the Democrats have resolved to neutralize Bill Barr by attacking him and the office and his integrity and his career. This is the first step. What a cynical, mean-spirited, counterproductive, irresponsible step it is. Uh, Chris Grant, I noticed that Politico in their afternoon newsletter uh, headlined it, uh, Capitol Hill is is dark and getting darker. And if you watch that Judiciary Committee debate unfold today, you see that it's just everything seems to be coming unraveled up there. Well, I think it really shows um, the difference between what goes on under the gold dome versus what's going under going on under Capitol dome, there is a real rancor and anger that's motivating and animating both sides at this point, and neither side can divorce themselves from a base that is absolutely demanding ultimate loyalty to either impeaching the president for the Democrats or um, uh, allowing the president to be exonerated by a report that obviously doesn't exonerate him completely. When you're likely to run into a large percentage of your base, this is Leo, church, by the way, yep. or when you're in the grocery store, you tend to be more accountable for actually getting legislation done. Mm-hmm. And that's what local politics is about. That's why our state house is, is more um, uh, cooperative with each other, more so than those in Washington. I've never had more moment, uh, many moments like I had today where I had a sinking feeling while listening to a congressional um, uh, event. And uh, we are in a really, really dark place. I want to ask Tamara, if you're, is she still on the Tamara is with Tamar, us. Tamara, how much um, weight is that whole question of whether or not William Barr, Attorney General Barr, would be breaking the law? Um, the issue of, because I noticed that Democrats really didn't address that issue of 6E, on whether or not William Barr would be breaking the law if he released grand jury testimony. Um, you know, that that's something that, that the Republicans have definitely been talking about in terms of legal precedent. They've been comparing a lot of it to how the House was operating when they held uh, uh, Eric Holder in contempt, gosh, like maybe 10 years ago. Um, and, and they say that, that, that Barr's been doing everything according to the book, and if anything, he's been kind of bending over backwards, um, you know, for, for all of it. Um, so actually, I'm not quite sure about your question, Leo, but... Uh, it's certainly well, a lot of procedural back and forth. Are, are the buzz around there, I mean, there are plenty of attorneys in D.C. <laughs> so are they saying that, you know, that, that statute, 6 does it actually hold any weight or is it just, you know, the, some jets? It, it is my understanding that you can interpret that statute depending on who's, which lawyer side you, you know, you're, you're, you're having represented. And, and so there are questions about that. But let me go to the larger question. Everybody, tomorrow, let me start with you. I mentioned that the, uh, the, P, the playbook uh, that Politico uh, just sent out this afternoon, and by the way, if you don't subscribe to it out there in our audience, it's really a great summary, both in the morning and the afternoon, the Politico AM and PM playbook. Um, so here's, they point out, Tamar, here's, it, as the mood darkens, as they say, as as things come unraveled in the way Republicans and Democrats are dealing with each other as the White House continues to stonewall the Democratic Congress, Politico points out that here's what needs to be done in the months ahead. The disaster relief package for Georgia, among other states, we'll talk a little more about that in a while, lifting the death, death, the debt limit, passing a new government funding bill, um, an infrastructure bill, which people on both sides seem to think uh, is important. President Trump wants a drug pricing reform bill. Uh, the president wants NAFTA replaced with his USMCA. Tomorrow. It strikes me that Georgians watching all this unfold, like the rest of the country, are unlikely to see cooperation on any of these issues in the months ahead. What's your take on that? 
Exactly. The the trust has been completely shattered on, on both sides. And there used to be an issue, you know, disaster relief used to be the best example yeah. of something that was considered non, nonpartisan, where the, the two sides could work together very quickly. Everybody kind of had the understanding, even if it's not my state, my district that got hit, mine could be next with the next storm that comes. But there's so little trust now between the administration and congressional Democrats about what's actually happening. As I try and follow what's going on with the disaster bill, for example, you know, you talk to some a lawmaker who's in the middle of it. Oh, something's wrong. I'm not even sure what it is this hour. Um, but but people are just so wary of, of trusting one another. And it doesn't help that new issues keep getting thrown into the mix because lawmaking has stopped on such basic things like passing a, a budget, um, you know, doing routine legislation that whenever there is something that has to move, like a disaster bill, there's a ton of pressure to add other issues onto it, which is what the White House is trying to do right now with, with border security money, um, you know, potentially adding it onto the disaster bill. They're already having problems negotiating it all and then yeah. throw in a, something that could potentially blow it up like, like immigration. Um, that makes it near impossible. Scott, does any of this roll down to the state level? In other words, do your constituents who are, I, I assume, like many Americans, are increasingly fed up with the way things are happening in Washington, do, do they start to look at whether you all, you just talked about this great bipartisan effort with, which you made to get your rape kit bills passed, but are you feeling from your constituents this sense that they just have lost faith in elected officials, regardless of Washington, Georgia, or wherever? There, there is definitely a, a strong sense that our national government is not working and there's very little optimism that that's going to change anytime soon. It's, there's a lot of sound and fury, but not a lot to show for it. And it's, it's very troubling because we have massive issues that need to be addressed now. And you see all of this um, name calling and, and anger and, and everything else. And it's just not working. And but, but do they take it, do they see it affecting legislature too? Do they look at you all in the legislature and associate you with that intransigence on the Hill as well? Or are they more open to the, to the possibility that you know how to work with each other? I don't find that as much. And, and I work very hard to build relationships with the people that I represent, and they understand my role is different from the federal government's role. But I do hear from legislators who uh, their constituents confuse them with going yeah. to Washington. I've never had that happen. Um, I think that it, it probably depends, you know, on the jurisdiction. But it's not a positive time for for yeah. politics. Right. And I'm going to add another little dash of cynicism to the narrative that everything um, is, is more bipartisan in Georgia than it is in Washington, because that's true. There's there's some bipartisan accomplishments, but you're starting to see that seep more into the, the daily debate. I mean, this was a more divisive session than we've seen in a long time, um, uh, not just with the heartbeat bill, but there was a lot of people from both parties who left this session saying, thank goodness it's over, and not in jest, like I can go back to my work and my family, but really, thank goodness it's over, because it was such a fraught uh, 40 day period. And uh, you're starting to see that a little bit more than you did in the past. Yeah. Uh, I did think it was interesting, Chris, that when the when HB 481, the abortion bill was signed uh, by at the governor's office the other day, that uh, a number of speakers, and of course, these were all people who were it, it supported the measure, uh, went out of their way to talk about the fact, including the governor, by the way, that they knew there were people who opposed the bill, but they were pleased that there was respectful debate, all of that sort of thing. To my, I thought that seemed like more like wishful thinking and and papering over some of the really bitter, bitter feelings about yeah, that. I was at the Capitol one day during that debate, and it really, really did not seem to be like it was respectful debate. There were people in the aisles holding placards. There were people coming out of the chambers not being very pleasant. Um, it, it didn't seem like that. And one other thing that I just mentioned, this is when I'll be a political scientist for just a minute, part of our system of government requires a willingness to compromise. Uh, I sometimes think our voters don't understand that when they make choices about who they send to Washington in particular, but part of the system requires compromise. And if we're not going to have compromise, we're going to need to do some constitutional reform, serious constitutional reform. I personally would go on a, uh, a rant a bit about the fact that a budget hasn't been passed for most of the last two decades. And that's irresponsible government. That should not be allowed. I, 
would like to see an amendment to the Constitution that might say you can't run for re-election to Congress <laughs> if you don't pass a budget, because that's your first and foremost duty in that chamber. Interesting. Uh, Tomorrow, let's put a period on this conversation about what's happening in House Judiciary by my asking you this question. There is no question today uh, that, and, and we've seen this for months now, really, Doug Collins is a hugely important figure on Capitol Hill when it comes to defending President Trump. He has become a major player. And in the long run, I mean, for the time being, that seems to serve him well. But in the long run, there probably are some downsides to that as well as some upsides. Yes? I mean, for now, look at him. He's on every cable news network, you know, prognosticating and and doing his thing. You know, it certainly helps get his name ID up. And, you know, we've heard rumors for a long time that that he might be looking at a a statewide run, run, maybe for Senate, maybe for governor, maybe for something else. Um, And and for now, this helps him. And I think as long as Trump remains a popular figure in Georgia, that should maybe bode well for him. Um, But but maybe if public sentiment changes, changes, then, then that gets harder to do. Well, it's interesting. He still remains Trump himself. It, his numbers in Georgia mm-hmm. are not changing, e- either uh, positively or negatively, based on the Mueller report, uh, Leo. He s- remains at, I think, 49% approval. Have I got that figure right, or is that too It high? depends on the poll. All right. But, but around Gallup had him up seven since the uh, Nationally. Yeah, I'm nationally. Talking about the Georgia polls Georgia. have him close to 40%. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he's still wildly popular among Republicans in Georgia. Yeah, of course. All and right. that's why it won't hurt Doug Collins, because he right. he represents one of the most Precisely. conservative districts east of the Mississippi. Precisely. And I want to just, if I could quickly make one statement, that, that Doug Collins did disagree with um, President Trump on whether or not the Mueller statement should be released. Yeah. Um, saying he had Well, he wants Mueller it. to come right. and testify, yeah. despite right. what President right. Trump has said, which is an interesting departure from the president on that issue. Yes. And he's a vociferous supporter of legislation that relates to criminal justice reform yeah. and other sorts. So he does stand as a brand by himself. Absolutely. Um, Leo, I want to stick with you for just a minute. You spent a good part of the uh, last few years uh, wanting to go out and find African-Americans who would run for office in Georgia, who would get involved with the Republican politics. Um, th- we now have the first African-American candidate, Republican candidate for a Congress up there in the 7th District. He's a really interesting guy. His name is Harrison Floyd. He's a Marine. He um, he's he's running as a guy who hates socialism. Let's just listen to uh, the uh, audio section of the, the video he posted the other day when he announced he was running. My name is Harrison Floyd. I'm a fourth generation military veteran, a former United States Marine. I'm running for Congress because my family and I didn't fight for our freedoms to allow our country to fall to socialism. I'll fight socialists in Congress the same way I fought terrorists in the desert. So help me God. I'm Harrison Floyd and I approve this message. Leo? Interesting candidate. Very interesting candidate. Um, you know, we see candidates like that here and there. Not a lot, a lot known about this particular candidate talking to Republican leaders across the state just this past week. Um, I think he's uh, fairly new. He's been living in Washington a lot as a staffer and uh, has now come here. It's interesting that uh, uh, former Speaker Glenn Richardson, uh, his staffer, Jay Walker, is one of his political consultants, um, which is fascinating in itself. And Doug Collins' son is one of his campaign directors. Scott, Uh, what do you think about the (laughs) fact that we have an African-American Republican up there in in what is going to be a very crowded Republican and Democratic field for that 7th district? And the messaging, this picking up on the Trump line about how Democrats are becoming socialists and we have to fight off the socialist threat to the country. Um. Well, my first reaction is uh, I'm a veteran. I certainly have a lot of respect for fellow veterans, but I think it's a very common trap that they run um, campaigns that that's all they talk about. And it, it doesn't tend to translate very well in terms of electoral success. And in terms of the socialism thing, I get it. I mean, I even get that from some very hard right 
people in my district. But if you look at certainly what's happening is, is there is no breakout of socialism in the United States. But we do need to talk about whether or not capitalism is working for everybody, inequality. Like, those are real legitimate issues that we need to talk about. So it's probably a fairly smart move in terms of appealing to a very hard right base for a primary. But I also don't think that that's going to work for the 7th District in terms of general, if he were to win. And I think, I think Democrats are going to win the 7th District next year. Green. What's interesting to me is all the message overlap, because you mentioned how he came out with the Trump line about socialism. Yeah. Well, every every candidate has done yes. the same thing. Yep. Karen Handel's introductory video and for her comeback um, mentioned uh, focused on uh, AOC, AOC and Tribe and and, yeah. and, um, and, and and Omar and. Um, so did uh, Lynn Homrick, the newcomer, the other Republican newcomers running in that district. And I bet you if Renee Underman runs, her message will sound a lot similar to the same because it's something that, that energizes the Republican base. At least the consultants think energizes the Republican base. And straight out of foresight, if state rep Todd Jones runs, I think you're going to hear the same thing. Chris? I mean, it's a meme. Yeah, it's really interesting. I taught um, European politics and Latin American politics last semester. And so I had to cover Marx in both of them. And it was amazing to me the knee-jerk reaction of students when you mentioned the word Marx. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and I'm not telling you I'm a Marxist. I'm not telling you that I believe in socialist theory. I'm just going to explain a little bit about what Marx said. Nope, can't do that. This can't happen. No, no Marx. And I think that we have done a very good thing and a disservice to our students and to people in this country by not explaining to them what realistically socialism is. I mean, you know, I hear Elizabeth Warren being called a socialist. She's a believer in regulated markets. I mean, she would be a Repu she was a Republican for ages, but she'd be a Republican of the of the Teddy Roosevelt era. That's a Republican strategy for using markets and regulating. Okay, them. but let's Scott, let's not forget, you know, that what Chris says may be absolutely correct, but the Republicans can make this work for them to an extent. And example number one is uh, John Hickenlooper, candidate for president of the United States, goes on a cable news show and is asked whether he's a capitalist or not and fumbles the question, is afraid to say, yes, I believe in capitalism. And that's a, ref a pr reflection of how Republicans are using this issue against Democrats. It's definitely um, an issue for sure. And I think one of the things that I've very clearly learned in this business is that it is not a rational business. It is an emotional, <laughs> it is an emotional we business. We wouldn't do that. If it were a rational business, there'd be no point in doing this show. That's true. <laughs> you know, That's from, true. from Newt Gingrich to Donald Trump, you know, the, the best defense is offense. Yeah. And to hurl these kinds of... Uh, you know, narratives on anybody makes them defensive. And that's what the Democrats have become. Tamar, what are you hearing from, from Democrats up in Washington? Yeah, I wanted to know that too, Tamar. Um, for, for a lot, you know, it's, it's interesting hearing people who are from very safely Democrat districts who really don't have to worry about re-election versus others who, who might have to start worrying. The, the ones who are kind of in swing districts, they're very eager to talk about more local issues, things they're, they're doing with constituent service that sort of thing. Um, way less about the national issues. They would never be photographed with AOC or, or with any of those people. Um, you know, whereas you have somebody like Hank Johnson, who I, who I was talking to about this issue, and he said, well, people love Social Security. People love Medicare. They don't consider those things socialism. Um, there's a way to talk about ideas, um, you know, and, and ways government can help without being called socialism. Um, but Greg and I are actually working on a story about this entire issue um, for one of our future editions of the paper. And, you know, looking at the Republican side, it's such an easy argument to make. Like, there's no downside. You're going on the offense. You're, you're, you're basically saying these people aren't in line with, uh, with your values, us versus, uh, versus them. And, it, you know, there, there really aren't too many downsides to it, at least at this point. Um, real quick, because we got to get to a break, but I did notice one aspect of this. There's a very quick shot in this video that, that uh, he's released that shows him with a, uh, some kind of automatic weapon uh, <laughs> as a soldier. Yeah. And Carolyn Bordeaux has jumped the Democrat, uh, who is, you know, in terms of fundraising and in terms of name recognition, probably fair to say leading in that field, has jumped on it already, saying there's no place for war, for weaponry in it. And I get it. 
But the shot lasts for maybe a second and a tenth. <laughs> and what his camp points out is he's a, he was a machine gunner. He was gunner a machine gunner. He served three tours of combat duty um, overseas, including in Iraq. All right, and we, as an unknown, I'm sure he appreciates the free publicity. Yeah, I imagine that's right. All right, right. All right we got to get to our first break of the show. We'll do that and come right back with a lot more. Hi, I'm Taya Ryan, president and CEO of GPB. We've been hearing from listeners across Georgia and beyond thanking us for GPB's Stealth Drive, the new, less intrusive fundraising approach you've been hearing about. We hoped that listeners like you would appreciate getting more programming and less fundraising so much that we'd see the same level of support that comes in during a traditional fund drive. Here's where we're at. We've passed the halfway mark for the number of days of the drive. However, we have not yet reached the halfway mark in terms of the funding that sustains the services GPB provides. We're counting on you now to support the programs that matter to you and keep traditional on-air fundraising days this spring to a minimum. Donate online at gpb.org or call 1-800-222-4788. Thank you for supporting GPB. So uh, let's talk about an issue that reminds us that race relations are never far from uh, the news in a state like Georgia. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Houston, Houston, Georgia. Does everybody agree on Houston? Are we all going to use that same pronunciation? Houston. If you're listening from Houston, you know, send us a note telling us if we're pronouncing it right. Thank you. Uh, Greg, here's what's going on. The mayor, Teresa Kennerly, was hiring a city administrator. Uh, an African-American candidate emerged, and uh, she apparently uh, made the remark that Houston, she did not believe it's a white community, a mm-hmm. largely white community. Uh, she wasn't sure that the community was ready for an African-American city administrator. The news of that got out. And it became a huge uh, controversy. Uh, and then, in addition to that, um, a uh, member of the city council made a comment uh, to your report, AJC reporter, Chris Joyner. to Chris Joyner, who was covering the story, uh, saying essentially he, he doesn't believe that interracial marriage is appropriate. He thinks it's. Um, ungodly or whatever. So suddenly this thing has become a huge uh, fight in the community. People calling for the mayor to step down, for uh, the council member to step down. It's a bad situation. It is. Chris uncovered this through a combination of old school beat on uh, shoes on the ground reporting and also records. He got he got the the initial tip through records request that showed um, exactly what what Bill Nigat just said. Um, the records request showed that uh, you know a, a a member of the city complained they were worried that the mayor said that this town was not ready for for an African American employee. Um, and that's caused an outroar. You've you've heard calls not just for the mayor to step down, but also the council member who made those incendiary remarks to Chris about not the intermarriage is is is, is, is defies Christianity. Um, and there's a vigil this week. There's been outroar, uh, uproar all over the community. And and just the other day, um, there's videotape of of that councilman leaving a meeting and just getting um, followed by several officials, including the former. Republican chair of the county who is urging him to step down and who said I will I will make a recall election I'll organize a recall election if you don't step down he goes to go do it he's, he seems pretty defiant what's encouraging to me is that there have been citizens in Hushton who have said no that's not the sort of representation or the sort of leadership we want in our city um, whether we're white or black um, and there's been uh, two council people Hope Weeks and councilwoman Susan Powers uh, who both collaborated with one another to report this issue to the city attorney and I think that I feel pretty confident that they're going to deal with this pretty quickly and hopefully judiciously um, because the city attorney has obviously been intercepting emails and telling them this is highly inappropriate. So uh, it looks like they're going to have to take action on this and councils, the rest of council is going to cooperate. So, Scott, it's a local issue uh, and uh, we'll watch how they work it out. But the reason it matters is, it to me, is that we can't escape. 
We just can't escape having to deal with race over and over again in in this state. And like and George is certainly not alone. I don't mean to suggest George is unique, but racial issues continue to be a terrible problem for all of us in this country. And we can't tolerate discrimination. Yeah. And this is just an absolute um, ridiculous case of explicit discrimination. We know that implicit bias exists too, and this just continues to shine a light on how um, on how the problem is still alive. And we're talking about a mayor and a city councilman who really should know better, and they have no business being in public service if they have the views that they have, and they should resign. It's just, it's something where there really is no middle ground. This is clear-cut discrimination, and it cannot be excused. I think that one of the things that strikes me is the fact that we're going to be teaching this as a case in public administration classes in the future about what not to do. The second thing that I thought about is that we're not ready for this. That seems to be a refrain that's used oftentimes as a way of saying, oh, I'm not racist, but other people are, and and I have to do this. I think that we have to accept that we are ready for the end of racial inequality, and that if you're not working to end racial inequality, you're working to perpetuate it. Um, And Beverly Tatum wrote that in her book, White All Black Kids. Uh, sit together in cafeteria, and she's right. You're either a part of the problem or you're working to solve it. Well, it's fair to say that most of us are ready (laughs) for these things to disappear, but there are some elements that still exist. And this is why, even as a person who believes in meritocracies, even in, in talking to people, you know, you eat the potatoes, you dig, that sort of idea. I believe in that strongly. But I also still believe in affirmative action um, because of what you've seen out in California with Hollywood paying for admissions to universities. Um, that kind of affirmative action has still continued to occur. Um, this kind of situation is real. Um, it's probably happened to me before. It's happened to other folks before as an African-American male. And uh, and so I know that you know not all people judge things on the basis of merit and these influences come into play. And that's why we really haven't gotten an equal playing field yet. All right. Um, We'll watch how that uh, situation out there unfolds in the weeks ahead. Tamar, let's come back to talk about issues going on in Washington right now. We we know you added some, you gave us some information in passing a minute ago that I want to pursue. I want to talk about hurricane relief. Uh, You know, we've talked about it a lot on this show. And in some ways, you know, Tom Faust and I were having a conversation about this before the show. How much do we want to talk about this? We talk about it every show. Nothing seems to be happening. But the fact is, it continues to be a significant problem for the people of South Georgia, um, as well as for the people of Puerto Rico, for that matter. So, Tamar, the latest news that I was aware of is that we now have nine governors, a bipartisan group of governors from states across the country who have joined with Brian Kemp in in demanding, maybe too strong a word, in requesting, in saying, urging Congress and the White House to please find a way to work together to get past the impasse and get help out to the states that need it. And then you added some additional information that now we're talking about border funding going into uh, the mix in that relief measure? Yeah, so so this letter that, that came yesterday from the governors, it was the first time, first of all, that we saw Kemp partnering with Democratic governors. We had the governor of California who signed on, the governor of Illinois, also a Democrat. So that was interesting in and of itself. The, the letter did not mention anything about immigration or, or Puerto Rico, which are kind of the two big issues hanging over the negotiations right now. Um, but it is a notable step. It's also important to know that, that Kemp still isn't um, – you know, isn't criticizing Trump at all in his role in the negotiations. He's, he's being careful not to kind of talk about Isaacson or Purdue or any of the, the kind of chief negotiators as a part of this, too. So, so people are still very mindful that um, this is still kind of in the negotiation phase. There was a, a moment last week when, when I think everybody saw some optimism. It seemed like things were really starting to come together. Republicans seemed to be willing to accept more money for Puerto Rico, which had been until then the, the big holdup. But now we got news this week that the White House wants border security money, which which Democrats aren't going to accept either. Um, you know, so so it's an interesting time. And, and like I said, there's just so much mistrust about 
everyone and their intentions. Um, and in the meantime, everyone is just freaking out and frustrated and annoyed and scratching their heads. <laughs> Chris, you must be seeing it down your way, below you and around you in the Macon area. Right. Well, uh, this was a Category 5 hurricane that came ashore and devastated a pivotal election state, Florida, and then right on into Georgia. And you would think that a president who has made a reputation for being a deal maker would find the elements of a deal here. But this is a president that seems to want to raise the stakes every time an agreement has been made and and sort of rip the football out in front of Charlie Brown over and over again. Whether or not that will play well with him over time is really interesting. I thought it was interesting after his, um, we, last time I was with you, uh, we were talking about the, uh, the military bases and the funds being pulled out of them. Just after that is when Senator Isaacson went to the floor to defend John McCain's reputation. Mm-hmm. And I think that what, what Senator Isaacson was doing was saying very clearly, there is a place you can go that is too far. We have stood by you loyalty. And Senator Isaacson is an institutionalist. He's a Georgia representative. But there is a place that you can push us too far. Scott, um, here's the perfect example of how the, the lack of, of any kind of comedy in Washington is hurting the state of Georgia, Puerto Rico, too, for that matter. I agree with you. And, and I would say that the president is an amateur dealmaker. Uh, he's good at talking about um, non-existent successes, but not very good at delivering. And, and it's a real tragedy what has happened with respect to the hurricane relief. I mean, people are really hurting. And some of my colleagues in the General Assembly who are farmers, they were really hurting. And they were really frustrated about how long it's taking. And this this really is a no-brainer that needs to get done. And so if our government can't solve no-brainers, how are we going to really tackle the hard problems? You know, I thought about you with this, Greg, because during the campaign, the gubernatorial campaign, you were in South Georgia mm-hmm. with uh, President Kemp, uh, with Governor, <laughs> Governor, uh, Not in waiting, Governor Kemp. <laughs> Brian Kemp, the candidate, how's that? Uh and you were you were actually with him, I think, when he toured some of the hard hit areas down there. Uh, and he must have made promises to those farmers that he would help them. He he did, and he said it over and over again. He went down to Tifton not that long ago to to address uh, dozens of farmers, many of them, not only his supporters but people who raised thousands of dollars for his campaign. Um, and he's also telling him at the same time, hey, I can only do so much. You know, the state has a rainy day fund of $2.5 billion. This would wipe out the entire state reserves if we were to try to, this is what the federal government is for. And you can also see how how easily this is going to be a 2020 campaign issue if there's no if there's no traction on it. Because if you're Teresa Tomlinson and you go to Southwest Georgia, what do you say? Hey, David Perdue is, is, is one of Trump's, Trump, Trump's most loyal allies in the Senate, yet even he can't get you. I got to say, I think to some extent, it's already, the damage is already done, Scott. In other words, they may make a deal in the next couple of months, but we know that farmers are already uh, missing their planting season. They are already uh, hurting in terms of having any kind of money to, to move forward with their uh, with their work. So in some ways, I think the issue already is baked into the 2020 cycle, even if they resolve this soon. Yes? You think that's right? I agree with you. We're going to be coming up on the year anniversary in not too long. I mean, we're in May right now, and people have have seen no relief except for what the state did. And the state knew that we couldn't do it alone. And we needed federal back support, and we have not gotten it. You know, Leo, as a a political issue, purely as a political issue, one of the things I find interesting about this is that if you're David Perdue coming up next year for re-election, you really, your instinct may be, and I may be wrong, this may have happened, but not to my knowledge, your instinct may be, I've got to get down there and talk to these farmers. I've got to be with them, tell them how hard we're working. But on the other hand, there's a real liability to that because the minute you show up down there empty-handed, you're not improving their situation or yours. Well, if, if, if Georgia farmers, I believe, are looking at the situation, believing that from Brian Kemp to Purdue to Sonny Purdue, um, with the power that we have in Washington, D.C., I think they think that we've got the right team there. I think with the politically what's going to happen here is this thing's going to get spun into more reason why Democrats ought to be about legislating. And we spent all this time talking about investigations, 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 and little time deliberating about this. Chris, we got to get to a break. You get the last word on this. 
Well, I think that Leo makes a good point that the investigations, and this is what Nancy Pelosi doesn't want the Democrats in Washington to be doing, is to be on endless investigations. She wants them to be producing legislation. But if you think about where the damage is done and anything that would be done to deflect voters from their traditional voting patterns, this is not good for Republicans. It's not a good situation for them. It's a place where if Stacey Abrams had done a bit better, she might be governor right now. All right, um, let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, Tamar Hellerman, you've got a couple stories, uh, more stories, uh, beyond Doug Collins involving uh, Georgians in Washington that are worth our conversation. We'll get to those after our break. Across this country, news organizations have been trimming staff or closing up, but listeners like you keep public radio strong. I'm Steve Inskeep. When you step up to give now, you keep reporters in your region on the story. Public radio gives you serious, sustained examinations of our world. Help the journalism that you rely on stay strong. All you have to do is give. Donate online at gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, how the junk science of eugenics and anti-immigration sentiment merged in a 1924 restrictive law that kept out Jews, Italians, and Eastern Europeans. A Nazi handbook cited this law as a model for Germany. We'll talk with Daniel Okrent, whose book describes how the scientific racism movement shaped American immigration law. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Uh, welcome back to Political Rewind. A couple quick notes. Uh, first of all, I don't mention it often enough, but uh, you ought to join if you want to, and you're in a place where you can. The community of people who watch us on Facebook Live, it's really become a very lively place for people to comment on the show. And all you have to do is uh, go to the GPB news page on Facebook, and you'll find the stream there, and you'll start seeing all of the comments that our listeners uh, leave, our very enthusiastic and engaged listeners uh, leave for us there. Uh, second, I wanted to point out that we are going to be in Cartersville. We're taking the show on the road. We'll be there on Monday night, June 3rd, 7 p.m. at the Grand Theater. Uh, we'd love to have you come out. We have a lot of fun when we do the show on the road. It's uh, easy to get tickets. You go to politicalrewind.org. You click on the link. Just sign up. You get free tickets, but we want you to make a reservation so we can guarantee that you'll get a seat. I have to make one. Finally, talking about our Facebook page, I just noticed, Greg Bluestein that Joe McCutcheon is listening and said he likes us. Joe McCutcheon, one of the real old-time Republican operatives up there LJ, right? in LJ, Georgia. And Joe, we're always glad when uh, you're paying attention to our show. He's been a really interesting part of Georgia politics oh, yeah. for a very long time. Tamar Hellerman, Chris Ray, Atlanta attorney, tapped to be FBI director. Some people said, what, are you nuts? <laughs> you know, He went up there, though, and he has managed to stay out of the line of fire uh, for the most part, including apparently after saying the other day in a, in a congressional hearing, uh, I don't agree with President Trump what FBI and intelligence operatives did uh, with the Trump campaign was not spying. I reject that expression. It's interesting that Ray seems to so far be kind of Teflon coated in all this. I know, a master class in how to kind of keep your head down and stay out of the limelight. Um, he was on Capitol Hill earlier this week, and he, he disagreed with his boss, William Barr, um, yes. in a very kind of polite way when he said he didn't think the FBI spied, which is the, the term Barr used on, on the Trump administration. Yeah, picking it up from the president who had said it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and of course, he's going to defend his own people and, um, you know, in, in all of this. But, but this is something to watch over the next few months. We, we've been talking about Doug Collins and his role on judiciary. Now he has an, uh, you know, an ally in the Senate in Lindsey Graham. Um, you know, the new refrain you're going to hear more and more is investigate the investigators, the people at the FBI and the DOJ who kind of planted the seeds for the Mueller investigation, you know, who, who sought the, the uh, FISA warrant so they could, um, you know, look into some of Trump's campaign people to see if they were communicating with Russia. Who is watching the Watchmen? Yeah, he has to. He has to. It really highlights the line he's got to walk because he he can't look like he's um he's insulting his own agency or else there'll be a mini revolt within that we'll never know about. But you know he'll start he'll start getting rebuffed by his own FBI department. Uh, at the same time, he has to keep his head down, as Tamar said, because if you draw Trump's line of fire, you're in trouble. 
So that's Chris Ray. Uh, another quick story, and we're going to just do it very quickly tomorrow, is uh, up there in sunny Purdue's USDA, uh, he's lost some uh, economic researchers who are were upset because as they published reports which uh, suggested that farmers were suffering as a result of the Trump trade policies uh, and the tax rewrite, which they think did not it help them very much, uh, they are starting. He's lost at least six of them who have resigned in protest because Sonny Perdue said, we're going to call your findings preliminary research. We're going to say there's more work that needs to be done. So uh, Sonny Perdue dealing with uh, a Trump related issue himself tomorrow. Yeah, and one of his big priorities since becoming Secretary of Agriculture has been reorganizing the huge U.S. Department of Ag, which is something like 100,000 people. So he announced he was kind of moving this this economic research service under a different um, you know, assistant secretary, basically making them potentially more susceptible to political pressure. He announced he wants to move the headquarters out of Washington, which angered a lot of folks who had been there a long time. Mm-hmm. In general, just a broader mistrust about you know the Trump administration and whether they support researchers. Right. And actually, they're going to have a vote tomorrow, these, these uh, economic research service employees, about whether to unionize. So that's something uh, to watch. All right. Interesting. Hey, all right. We're, we're really running out of time. But, but Scott Holcomb, we've now seen, I mean, HB 481 has now been signed into law. We've been waiting to see how much uh, what kind of storm of protest uh, the uh, people who uh, believe in uh, choice would create? We know lawsuits are coming. It, it's been a little. It's been quieter than I, than I think some people expected in reaction to this. But the storm is still. Winter is coming. Yes, Scott. <laughs> well, it, it's only been a day. Well, I right? understand that, but okay. And. and, and I've certainly heard from people that I represent. I don't think the passions have in any way died down. And I think absent a real radical departure from our country's constitutional jurisprudence, there's no way that this law survives in the courts. I just don't see it. Yeah, I I didn't mean to suggest there wasn't strong emotion out there. Clearly there is, Greg. Um, But, for instance, you all published today in The Political Insider an item that pointed out that we haven't seen the big reaction some people worried would come out of Hollywood, production companies saying we don't want to work in, in the state. In the days, in the immediate aftermath, we're still in a wait-and-see yeah. wait mode. I think there's more to come, especially from Hollywood. Sure. Um, but but we had a we, we had an example of this when Ohio and Kentucky and some of the other states passed similar laws. You didn't see Fortune 500 companies threaten to bolt like we did with religious liberty. And certainly we've we've asked all the Fortune 500 companies here, and they all kind of sidestep the issue entirely. So abortion's a little different than than religious liberty in, in this in this in this frame. But I think there'll be some some less organized, more sort of uh, individual, like, like you saw Alyssa Milano, she's, yeah. she'll never work in Georgia again, she yeah. said. Um, so you might see some, some of that type of backlash. And we know, Leo, that it's coming when the election cycle really yeah. ramps up. No, Legislative think, races are going to be uh, built around people who voted for or against this thing. Absolutely, it's coming. And I think you're going to get a glimpse of it when the Georgia Republican Party hosts its um, Georgia convention to elect a new chairman um, and new officers for his estate and executive committee uh, next weekend yeah. at, down in Savannah. I think a lot of those candidates for chair are going to have to deal with that issue as to whether or not they will support this legislation. And, and, and that you're going to see great support for it. Real and quick. Bill, Scott. I think one of the ironies of this legislation is that many that voted against it or walked are probably still going to lose their seats on the Republican yeah. side. Yeah. All right. You got the last word on today's show. Representative Scott Hogan, Chris Grant, great to have you up here from Mercer University down in Macon. Leo Smith, Greg Bluestein, thank you for being here as well. We're out of time for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again next time on Political Rewind.